It's Monday, September 19th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser, and from Stock Advisor Canada, Taylor Muckerman. Happy Monday. Hey, hey. How are we doing? I'm happy. Are you? Yeah. Just because your team won last night? Just because, you know, it's (laughs) Monday. It's It's Monday. Monday. We're back here at HQ. I mean, that's, that's... you know, it's a good thing. Living the dream. Sure. It's Mailbag Monday. We're going to dip into the mailbag, but we got to talk a little bit about last night's Emmy Awards. And stop me if you've heard this before. The Emmy Awards, not a great night for broadcast television. <laughs> uh, HBO took home Best Comedy and Drama, and the FX network t- actually tied HBO for the most awards of any network, largely or maybe entirely uh, thanks to The People vs. O.J. Simpson. We also saw Netflix. Bring home three statues, mm-hmm. Amazon winning a couple, and PBS too. Don't leave PBS out. That's right. They're, they're, they're that's right. that's, that's true. Too. Okay, so PBS is carrying the banner for. <laughs> if, you want, if you want to include that in broadcast television, which I will, because I'm old enough that you know when I was a kid there was ABC, NBC, CBS, and the boring one, and public, and the, and the one with the Muppets. Um, you know, there's, there's. I don't think there's any reason to think. Uh, not for lack of trying on the part of broadcast television, but I don't think there's any reason to think this trend reverses itself anytime soon. Yeah, I, I have a hard time see. I, I have a hard time seeing that happen. I mean, honestly, you've got this point now where um, your your networks like FX, for example, or, or, or whichever one, just just name it. I mean, they they just seem to have more creative freedom than than any of these three bigs. And that I think is proving to go a very, very long way. So FX, I mean, they they have a, I think what is really a pretty impressive lineup when you when you look at all of the different content they've put out there. And a uh, new season of American Horror Story just started. That's been well received. And that that's one of those series that, again, it's like that anthology series where every season's a new story. So they could go on as long as they want to. And the creators seem to have. Kind of this penchant for wanting to push the envelope and see how much they can get away with, and and, and obviously that creates interest. Um, I, I I was you know I saw the People versus OJ, and I mean you know granted I also lived it you know when when it was actually happening right. as, as did you. I mean I'm sure we remember it very well. Um, I, I was surprised to see it actually got so many awards. I mean I didn't watch the Emmys. I was I was kind of busy watching football, but Veep. I totally get. I watch it. I think it's hilarious. Game of Thrones. I understand. I don't watch it, but but man, it's just a rabid fan base. Um, and and maybe it was just due to the category that the people versus OJ was in, like a, a limited series or whatever. Right. And it was well made. But again, I think it was one of those series that really was able to sort of sort of push the envelope in in sort of you know what it was able to offer. I, you know, I think that in, in, when you have your CBS and NBC and ABC, they're they're sort of they have to adhere to these to these guidelines where they can only do so much, they can only go so far. You know, you can't put th- that toothpaste back in the tube. I, th- I think it's it's a new it's a new age for for TV entertainment, and I think that sports is probably going to be what what they real that's going to be the strength that they really have to take them forward. But it, it, I think it's it's partly what you're saying in terms of the restrictions on broadcast television. I also think. Um, the way that cable television restricts itself in terms of the number of episodes they put up in a series. Yeah. If you think about just the standard, you know, take a show like Veep, where a single season will have 10 episodes versus The Big Bang Theory or Parks and Rec or something like that, where they they got to put up 22, 24 episodes, that sort of thing. And you listen to people like uh, Chuck Lorre, who's the showrunner on shows like The Big Bang Theory, like, 
people like that will tell you, hey, if I only, you know, if you have to produce 22 episodes of a show in a given season, there are absolutely going to be shows where you just you just think your episodes where you think to yourself, well, this isn't great. They're yeah. diluted. Yeah, yeah. This is yeah. there's only so many ideas we have. Whereas if they were somehow able to restrict themselves or shorten their season and just you know go to a major network and say, listen, we'll we'll do this series for you. It's going to be great. It's only going to be twelve episodes. Yeah, no, I think that's a very good point. I mean, I don't know if um, I don't know if the big networks sort of have a come to Jesus moment where they say, "Oh yeah, maybe we need to kind of do what those other guys are doing." Um, perhaps, perhaps that does that does happen. But I mean, I guess you know, you, you look at uh, you, you look at something like Hulu out there, which is sort of a a cooperation between uh, Comcast and Disney and Fox, I think. And so maybe you'll see some more collaboration with the big networks and some new offerings like that. But um, I mean, we're watching a pretty amazing shift in the media space and every time every time i go to look at a potential movie to go see in the movie theater it just reminds me of how bad movies are nowadays <laughs> i mean they're really struggling for ideas it seems like and i mean I, i'm my wife and i were talking about this the other night just i can't believe like the deep water horizon is now actually a movie yeah I mean, pretty like, under the radar too yeah, yeah. it just seems kind of like all right really that's the best you got <laughs> and i mean you can tell the cast that they put in that movie is really sort of the competitive advantage, right? If that's a stock, that's their competitive advantage, the cast, because the story sucks. I mean, it does. The thing blew up and a buttload of oil leaked all over the ocean and just messed a lot of things up. We all know it. It was five years ago we lived it. And I just I can't fathom going to see that movie. Um, what if I told you Mark Wahlberg was going to be you know, a borderline superhero in, in terms of saving people? Well, maybe at least I'm then going to think about <laughs> no. it. But, I mean, still, I'm probably not going to go. But I think it just goes back... To the point that this really is a golden age for television, and it and it really does have to do with um, the way over the top distribution has just offered offered this whole new model. I mean, it gives the creators uh, a, a sort of a, a better avenue with which to create what they want to create. They're not bound by certain um, network guidelines and stipulations that, that are going to make them sort of sacrifice on the story. And and then to your point, they don't have to. You know, push that big volume out there. It's really more about quality versus quantity, and I think that matters. They don't have to focus on news. They don't have to have any morning shows. All they have to do is concentrate on creating content that people are going to rewatch or stream or sit down on their sofa and watch for four hours straight. Sure. So, the one thing that I think broadcast TV continues to have as an advantage, and I'm curious to see if this shifts at any point, is they have the eyeballs. They they just if you're just Talking about how many people are watching a given show, exponentially more are watching a show like The Big Bang Theory than a show like Veep, even though Veep is the one walking home with the trophy. Yeah, and I I think that you see it in things like in award shows, where I, I it would be interesting to see if at any point Netflix or Hulu or Amazon said, you know what, we're gonna we're gonna Make a bid for the Academy Awards or something like that, and just say we're going to stream it live, and that's it. I don't know that that's ever going to happen, um, but just in terms of drawing in the eyeballs, um, broadcast TV still has that advantage. Oh yeah, I'd be surprised if they did it by themselves. I would imagine it would be like a Twitter for the NFL on Thursday, sure. just like an add-on giving other people a different option of a way to watch it. But yeah, I think it's probably a little ways away from. Just the pure play. Here's the Emmys on Netflix, or here's the Emmys on Amazon. Yeah, I think most. I, th- I think most are looking 
sort of that three-pronged strategy of, of figuring out a way to get that content on broadcast, on cable, and then on digital. And that was that was what was behind the NFL's deal with incorporating Twitter into the mix this year. Was It's not just a solely a Twitter thing. I mean, it's it's just one more channel you know they can use to get that content out there. So, um, I, I imagine, like Taylor said, you'll see at some point where CBS is going to make a deal with Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat or something where they can start getting that content out in front of as many eyeballs as possible. Because the bottom line is... Your Facebooks and your Twitters, that's where that's where the eyeballs really are for for much of the day. Especially for things like award shows. Oh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's crazy. Our email address is marketfoolery at fool.com from Gary Fisher. For a dollar cost averaging strategy, is it historically better to save your money for a few months and wait for dips or buy each time you have the money? Dollar cost cost averaging by definition is you've got a fixed amount of money and you are regularly Investing it on a schedule. Um, so to to that question, Gary, uh, to Gary's question, mm-hmm. Taylor, what do you think? Well, I do. I invest through my four hundred one k twice a month. Um, but then I also have my own funds. We're probably treated a little bit more like oh, he's talking about waiting for a dip or waiting for a stock that I'm watching to pull back, or maybe a stock that I already own to pull back a little bit. Um, so I, I do believe in that monthly or you know every couple months adding to the market because you do over time tend to. You know, Get a better value at certain points, but um, I guess I like being two times a month because you know January and the Brexit. Maybe I got in there before or after at the same time. So um, I believe in dollar cost averaging rather than just waiting to have a huge lump sum and dumping it in. Because what if then the market falls two weeks after that? You've basically treated your entire savings um, as that one investment rather than waiting till right after or right before and splitting it in half. So I'm a big believer in dollar cost averaging, at least with my 401k. Yeah, I was going to say Jason, if you've got a 401k or any sort of sort of regular retirement savings plan, I mean that's maybe the easiest way to dollar cost average, but to Taylor's point, if in addition to that you can put away a little money on the side and and keep a watch list. Then then you don't have to choose. You Absolutely, know? I think that's just it. Is is there? You don't have to do one or the other. I think that's the best answer. Is that you do a little bit of a little bit of it all. And just like Taylor was saying, I mean, I, I dollar cost average uh, through my retirement plan here, and that that just occurs with every paycheck. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I keep an IRA and I have a discretionary account where. Cash is just in there, and I can be more opportunistic when I want to be more opportunistic. So, so I'm able to 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 do both, and I, and I think that's the ideal situation. I know it's not always very easy to get there, um, so it may take a little bit of time to sort of save up that money that you have to kind of go out there and be opportunistic. Um, but but again, I think it's a great it's a great uh, way to be able to invest is, is to incorporate both strategies. And if you have that schedule set, it kind of it gives you a routine so that you're not, you're not necessarily investing based on a motions the whole time. Yeah. Um, so just kind of letting that portion be automated. Consistently set a schedule so that you know if you deviate from that, then it's you to blame rather than the schedule to blame for the most part. Yeah, it protects you from yourself almost. Yeah. I mean you, you always sort of have this inclination that, man, I know what I'm doing. I can go in there and do that. <laughs> <laughs> but the bottom line is no one's perfect, especially in investing. And I think that um, that's that's the beauty of dollar cost averaging. It really does. It takes the thinking out of it and and you're going to Inevitably, look at those times and say, "Man, I wish I could have been more opportunistic." Yeah, there, exactly. Double down in my four hundred one k or whatever it was. But there are also going to be other times where where you're going to sort of be seeing the opposite play out, and and so ultimately that that regular uh, regular intervals investing in dollar cost averaging, it, it just protects you from yourself. You always you always think you're better than you really are. <laughs> 
Two things before we get to our final email. Uh, this weekend, the Ragnar Relay race took place in the D.C. area. For those unfamiliar, this is a 206-mile relay race. Do what now? <laughs> and uh, once again, the Motley Fool fielded a team, the running of the Fools, and they placed second in their division and eighth overall. So I wanted to give a quick shout out to the the running of the Fools team uh, of our colleagues here: Mark Brooks, Ed Gogren, Brian Faraday, Taylor Harris, uh, Nicole Nawarl, the Reverend Scott Dornbush, Max Hacker, Nate McMahon, Tim Hansen, Derek Newman, Mike Padilla, and industry focus host Christine Hargis. Wow! And all you have to do is just read a little bit about what is involved in running this race to think to yourself, I'm so glad I'm not doing this. <laughs> so they play second. I can only assume that the winners was it was the cast of The People versus O.J. Simpson. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Um, oh, secondly, over the past few months, uh, a few of you have either showed up to Full HQ um, or uh, sent your thanks in the form of bourbon. Uh, and we appreciate that. And last Thursday, we had a little something I like to call a member appreciation gathering, and it was smooth and glorious. <laughs> so, uh, special thanks to Steve Liston, Robin Rifkin, and Steve Jenkson, uh, Jenkins excuse me, uh, for sending us just some really high-quality bourbon. This is not a solicitation. This is not a solicitation. <laughs> it is just a thanks to those three gentlemen. Uh, question from Adam, listener number 41. Adam writes, I'm about to be laid off from my job. I have saved about $400,000 in an index fund in my 401k, which I may roll over into an IRA. If I do, I'm thinking that I would keep about 50% in the index fund and allocate uh, 30% to individual stock advisor picks and 20% to Motley Fool Options picks. Uh, Adam is a member of both those services. He concludes by saying, if you were in my shoes, how would you treat this? Um, let's sort of back up out of sort of the individual services and let's just sort of treat this as, you know, I think his his core question is, I'm thinking 50% index fund and 50% individual stocks. Yeah. What do you think of that? Uh, so I'm 44, or well, almost 44. So I guess I can sort of see where he's coming from. I hope I'm not getting ready to be laid off. So though, I I don't know that. I I think the first thing I want to do is make sure that I've got enough money to deal with however long I would anticipate being unemployed. Um, that that would be my biggest concern. Now I'm not sure from Adam's situation here if it's just Something that he'll he'll get another job here some at some point soon. But my my first goal would be to make sure that I have what I need to deal with whatever amount of time I feel like I'm going to be without a job. Because at 44, I mean, you're still you still have many 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 years of of productivity left, and you should be able to make a good amount of money uh, during those during those years as well. So I like the idea of um, having half of that, if not even more, in an index fund. Because that just gives you that that instant diversity where you're not pegged to just one stock, and then from there, I think I, I would probably from there I would just go very slowly. I would not feel compelled to get the other half of that money invested immediately in individual stocks or individual options. I like the idea of the strategy. I mean, I think at, at that age you're still sort of looking to grow your wealth versus protect it. But given the employment situation, you do have a a you have a dynamic here where you do need to protect your wealth at least to a degree. Um, so I would I think the half in index funds is great. 
I would be very, I would, I would take that other half, the other half of that money, and invest it very slowly. Um, I would not feel compelled to get it all in the market at once. Um, stay liquid, keep keep some dry powder on hand, and kind of going back to what we were talking about before with um, having that chunk of change where you can be opportunistic, um, and and also having some some liquid cash if you run into a situation where you really need it. Hopefully, you're back on the employment uh, side of things very soon, and, and this is a non-issue, uh, but just make sure that you've got yourself um, with with whatever liquid cash you need to sort of get through this time uh, without having to be a desperate seller in any case. Even with the 50% for the index funds, I would you know edge into that. I'll go back to the yeah. dollar cost averaging question, because you dump it all into the market right now, and you see numbers ticking up there right around all-time highs. Um, not I, saying that it's going to Collapse, but at the same time, I wouldn't dump dump it all there. So if it's cash, I would still ease in. Yeah, and I'm thinking, looking from his email, looking at his email here, it sounds like he's four hundred thousand in an index fund in the four hundred one k, which means so it's already he'd be market. able to roll that yeah, over yeah. into his into his right. IRA mm-hmm. in that same index yeah. fund. So then it would be a matter of what do you do from there, and and also understanding that any selling from that index fund, there are going to be tax implications there that you want to make sure you understand. Um, you may or may not be be subject to. Um, I, again, when you roll over something like that, I, I don't think you would run into any sort of tax problem if it's a four hundred one k or an IRA. But just make sure you understand all of those dynamics that are at play before you do any anything like that. Well, and to your point about how Adam's got many years of productivity ahead of him, also many years of compound interest. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's the thing when you when you just think about you know even if someone is just thinking, no, I'm just going to keep it all in an index fund. Well, you're looking at you know twenty thirty years of of compounding before you potentially need to tap that. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like he's thinking, okay, I'll roll all this over into an IRA, and I've got all this money in an in an index fund, and then typically, in a, you would be able to sell off any bit of that index fund that you want to invest in other ways, and you wouldn't have any tax problems because of the fact that it's in an IRA. Um, again, I mean, I, I just I think making sure you understand all the dynamics at play, make sure that you have yourself set up for however long you think you're going to be without a job, and and then. Um, and then proceed slowly. There's no no need to rush into anything. I feel like we just stole a question from the Motley Fool Answers podcast. <laughs> <laughs> like this is just dawning on me. So 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 if you're listening to this and you also happen to listen to the Motley Fool Answers podcast, let, this is just between us. Okay, yeah. don't tell them. <laughs> don't please. write it on your postcard. Don't write it on your postcard. Don't. Email Allison and Robert and let them know that we stole this question because, really, in all, in all fairness, this is more of a Molly Full Answers question. But you know what? Adam sent it to us. Hey, so hindsight's twenty twenty. There you they go. They can get their own dozens of listeners. Yes. Yeah, sure. exactly. <laughs> this is listener forty one. He's been with us for a while. Yeah, exactly. All right, Jason Moser, Taylor Markman. Thanks for being here, guys. Appreciate it. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.